Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John. It's been a while, and so we want to spend a little time just kind of getting ourselves back up to speed as to what has taken place and uh, the critical elements of the book of John thus far so that we can sort of slide right into chapter 5 this morning. And if you'll forgive the pun, we're just going to dip our toe into chapter 5, and we uh, will enjoy the benefits of seeing what it is to be blessed but unconverted, and therefore hopefully moved to acknowledge the goodness and the sovereignty of our Savior. You'll recall that in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, John says, "...in the beginning was the Word." The Word was with God, and the Word was God. If that alone were John's only statement about the person of Christ, we should know that he is God. But he goes on and says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he speaks specifically of his deity, but then he also speaks specifically of his creatorship. He is not only God, he is creator God. Down in verse 11, then, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is really the Christmas story in John's version. It's an expression of the reality that God became flesh. He robed himself in humanity. Uh, We call this Emmanuel, L being God. God in the flesh, God with us. His name is Jesus. He will save his people. How would he save his people? He, being God, would cause himself to be incarnate, and thus the term incarnation. In so doing, he would grant to all who would receive him to become children of God. All those who are born of God, not by the will of man. So from the beginning, John displays Jesus as the sovereign creator, Savior. And it's no mystery as to why John did this from the beginning. It was so that the character of Christ, the true nature of Jesus... The kenosis, the reality that God himself condescended to mankind without severing nor mitigating his deity. Theologians for centuries have referred to him as very God of very God and very man of very man. Not an admixture of two natures, but Two natures in one person. I so much want you to get the incarnation right for a couple of reasons. One, because it is not the easiest doctrine to get your mind around. So it needs to be repeated. We need to go back to it. Two, to communicate a wrong doctrine about the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ is nothing short of the greatest heresy. So if you have wondered at times if someone like T.D. Jakes or the like is maybe in fact a Christian because he seems to have such fervor for the Lord, know for certain that he is not. He preaches a false god, the god of modalism. And the idea behind modalism is what's called oneness theology. Uh, Some have referred to their own denomination as oneness theology. Pentecostalism, so they wear it as a badge of honor. It's not simply like they're sort of flirting around with a wrong view of God. It is that they stand firmly on a false view of God. It's critical that you understand this for that reason, that it is in fact heresy 
but it's also, of course, critical that you understand it for the sake of communicating it to others with grace and love in the event that God is drawing them to the Son, that you would have ample opportunity to point out heresies in light of solid doctrine, in light of the truth of Scripture, what God has really said about himself in contradistinction to the false man-made, really Satan-made concepts that are intended to divert people from the true Christ to a false Christ. It's critical. First, that you would not yourself be deceived, but also then that you would be able to help others be lifted out of that deception. Well, in verse 14, John further says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This word there, upon, could literally be translated as instead of. Grace instead of grace. You might even want to make that note in your Bible. That gives you really a better and richer understanding of how grace works. Any man, all man, every man, every woman, every child has spurned God's grace from the beginning. And so what does God do? He provides grace instead of grace. More grace. Grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has made him known. The God at the right hand of God, not another God, God the Son, standing next to God the Father, has made God the Father known. How so? By becoming incarnate, by expressing the true character of God, because he is the true character of God, but by doing so with a dual nature. He did not stop being God when he became man. When the scripture speaks of God who was begat, it does not speak of a beginning for God. It speaks of the beginning of his human nature and not the end of his deified nature. Well, John the Baptist comes on the scene. The priests and the Levites were sent by the religious leaders to question John the Baptist. And when they asked him who he was, he said... I'm not the Christ. Clearly, they were questioning him with regard to whether or not he was claiming to be the Christ and perhaps even wondered if he was. So this was the ultimate question. Who are you? He wanted to make it clear. I'm not the Christ. They asked him in chapter 1, verse 21, then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm a voice. That's all you need to know about me. I'm a conduit. I'm a publication. I'm an expression of the true person of Christ. I've come to tell you about the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. I don't even really consider myself a prophet. Of course, he was a prophet. He was the first Old Testament prophet in 400 years, but he didn't need to see himself that way. He simply needed to be seen and really consider himself to be a conduit of truth that he would point people to Christ. When they asked him about not being Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, he said in verse 26, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's already said about him, he comes after me, but he comes before me. He is before me, and he will come after me. Verse 29, then John explodes upon the Jewish leaders of the day, by pointing to the one that they had been looking for, but they were looking for him to appear in a 
phenomenally different manifestation. They wanted a world ruler. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted one to come as a king. The Messiah would be the one who would rescue them from captivity under Rome, and in doing so, he would enthrone Israel. And John just deflates all their expectations by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. And this should provoke immense consternation in one's heart who has been looking to any degree on any level with regard to who Christ is in the Bible. It ought to produce a willingness to acknowledge that Jesus didn't come to make you great. He didn't come to build your self-esteem. He did not come to make the church this elite group of people. He came as a sacrifice And the Apostle Paul, who lived a life of sacrifice in chapter 12 of the book of Romans, calls us to be a living and holy sacrifice. That our lives would emulate the person of Christ who came as a helpless sheep. Those who were looking on would have had at least some perception that he was pointing to Jesus as the one to which the sacrificial system pointed for centuries. This would have produced massive consternation. In verse 31, he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And so John acknowledges that there was no personal relationship no personal earthly relationship yet with Jesus, and yet he knew it was his role to be a voice, a one crying out in the wilderness with regard to the fact that this lamb would come. I I, I didn't really know him, though. I didn't know who he would be. But I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel, to his people And John bore witness, verse 32 says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's relationship with Jesus, if you will, could not have been convoluted by any sort of personal cronyism or any kind of uh, sentimental affection or any kind of, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. It was given to him specifically by the Father. The Father said to John, The one upon whom the Spirit descends is the Son of God. And John took that testimony from the Father, and he spoke that testimony at the moment that that happened. And so he could say, Behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 35, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So in that moment, John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, and Andrew, Peter's brother, left John's discipleship for Jesus' discipleship. And John the Baptist's desire was fulfilled. He had successfully led John and Andrew to Christ. Andrew rushes to find his brother Peter, In verse 41, Andrew says to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Then next, in verse 43, John tells us Jesus went to Galilee and calls Philip to follow him. And Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, Philip, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. That's chapter one. And in chapter two, Jesus performs his first miracle in a small town called Cana of Galilee when a wedding planner fails to plan ahead And Jesus' mother, Mary, simply says to him, they have no wine. 
So with compassion on the bride and on the groom and the maitre d' and the entire wedding party, Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into the purest, sweetest wine in the history of the world before or since, circumventing the natural, lengthy winemaking and wine-aging process, and at the same time, discrediting the need for the legalism of the external purification process for which those jars of water had been reserved. Verse 11 says this, The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Now there's much more, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to finish the review, but I want to stop here for a moment and say, look, you can't miss the reality that Jesus is the incarnate God. He came to save his people, and he did so in a narrative fashion. Some might ask, well, why wouldn't he just snap his fingers and do what he wanted to do? Well, he could have done that. He spoke light into existence. He spoke all creation into existence. You saw him speak wine out of water. Uh, he's performed many miracles. He, uh, you will see throughout the book of John, will perform untold numbers of miracles, as well as in the other Gospels. But this is God's design, to play out his sovereign grace in an earthly historical drama. And somehow, in God's perfect, wise, and loving, and gracious design, this best glorifies him. After this miracle, Jesus and his family and the disciples who were following him then went to Capernaum and then traveled up to Jerusalem during the Passover where tens of thousands of animals would have been being slaughtered, and for the many people arriving from far, many of them wouldn't have been able to travel with livestock for the animal sacrifice. So Jesus interrupts the highway robbery taking place at the hands of the religious leaders who were making money hand over fist. The text tells us, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, showing some familiarity with the Old Testament text of Scripture. They remembered what they had been told, what they had been taught, that Jesus would have a zeal for his Father's house, and they would remember that, of course, in the moment that he cleaned up his house. He cleaned house. He rid his Father's house of those who were impure and capitalizing on the misfortune of others. So Jesus shows his reverence for God and for the house of God. In chapter 2, verse 18, John says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. and Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, there is a bit of a parallel exchange going on here with regard to what the house of God was in the Old Testament eras, uh, and then even in that transitional period where there was the temple of God, and then ultimately the reality that Jesus would speak of the house of God as being the people of God. But the ultimate theological undergirding reality here is that God calls for purity. He calls the people of God to engage in the house of God as the house of God with no impurity. And Jesus has a zeal for that purity. Chapter 2 concludes with the statement that Jesus, knowing what is in the hearts of those who believed in him as a result of seeing the miracles he was performing, he does not entrust himself to them because he knows what is in man. He knows that it's a false belief on their part. It's a sincere but false belief, meaning that it's real, but it's faulty in its object. What are they trusting in? They're trusting in his ability to do great and magnificent things. 
And that's all they want, the sideshow. In chapter 3, Jesus exposes the corrupt heart of the leading teacher of the Jews by not only telling him that unless he is born again, he cannot receive the kingdom of God because that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, but also that he shouldn't marvel at this because, well, do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus should have known as an Old Testament scholar, in fact, the Old Testament teacher of the day, that God grants a heart of flesh and replaces the heart of stone to those who approach him with humility and repentance. But in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I mean, can you imagine going to a seminary and you go to the president of the seminary, maybe the best-known seminary in the world, and you talk to this president about the seminary, and he has absolutely no idea what it means to be reconciled to the God of heaven. He does not have any comprehension of the fact that it's actually a work of God. And he explains to you, know that it's a work of man. It's about man's choice. It's about man doing something on his own. What would he say to you? How can these things be? Exactly the attitude that Nicodemus had. And Jesus says in this text that Nicodemus rejects our testimony. I preached a condensed message uh, from three messages that I had done here, I kind of tightened it up and preached it at a, a, a friend's church. And uh, my friend told me after I had preached that message that, that a person in his church came to him and said, well, he liked your message, but he disagrees about Nicodemus. He, he thinks that Nicodemus was a believer. How could he not be if he was the teacher of Israel? I said, well, did you, did you just tell him? Or if you didn't, just go back to him and say that Jesus said... Nicodemus rejects our testimony. And see if I could apply a little bit of personal implication here in your life and in mine. This really ought to be the heartbeat of our lives. That when we come in contact with those who claim some affinity for the Lord or some seeming affinity for the Lord... It ought to be our effort to love them so much that we would ask about what testimony they're resting in. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? What is the gospel? I love that question. I hope you do too. I hope you love to present that question with grace. Uh, but the person who can't answer the question, what is the gospel, is someone who needs shepherding. He needs help. And in particular, if he's someone that's showing interest, that's a worthy use of your time. This was a worthy use of Jesus' time. Jesus is God, and yet his mercy, his compassion for Nicodemus and his mercy and compassion for the multitudes is shown in real-life interaction a willingness to actually have a discussion based upon the testimony of the God of heaven, not some bunch of catchphrases that don't mean anything, but certainly draw a crowd. You've been there, right? You've seen the many people coming down the aisle, the many people praying a prayer, the many people being baptized for the seventh time as a result of the fact that someone said, just ask him into your heart again. Where does Jesus do that? Here or anywhere? He doesn't. But what he does call upon Nicodemus to do is to acknowledge that you ought to know these things. You've been exposed to the truth. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? I mean, this is, this is a punitive question. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, now let me be bold, I, like I need to ask. 
Friends, this is the distinction between a God-made theology and a man-made theology. How can you and I talk about heavenly things to a person who doesn't understand earthly illustrations that clearly point to the reality of God's sovereign grace? That person makes it impossible. The person who is committed to a misunderstanding of earthly things and specifically committed to a misunderstanding of heavenly things as they are so easily illustrated by earthly things is a person who, you know, at least in the moment, needs more time. But there needs to be a breaking point. There, there needs to be a submission There needs to be a willingness to acknowledge that God speaks of himself in particular ways. And we must embrace the words of Paul in Romans 9, which say, who are you, O man, to question God? It's not to say that you can't ask why. The point is, if God has made a doctrine clear, believe it. If you don't fully understand it, join the crowd. And I mean the universal crowd of everybody who's ever lived that you aren't going to fully comprehend all the nuances and the ways of God. His ways are higher than ours. But to the degree that we can understand them, which begins with seeing that they are true, right? That's the beginning place. Seeing that a doctrine is true, that salvation comes like the wind. When did you ever bring the wind, right? When did you ever know where it went? You can't chase it. You can't trace it. And so... Jesus points to that earthly reality that Nicodemus just rejects. Why? Because not only in his whole life has he been resting on his legalistic performance, he's been teaching people to do the same, and that's how he puts food on the table. It is his security to teach people and persuade people to believe that you can fulfill the law and you must fulfill the law. Jesus points out, no, you must experience something that you can not initiate. Physical birth illustrates that. Spiritual birth is that. God accomplishes it. Well, in chapter 3, verse 16, maybe the most famous verse in all the world with regard to what's in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Um, For those who want to use verse 16 to say that God loved every person in the world equally, you ought to probably just encourage them to keep reading verse 17. Because if that's what Jesus intended to do, he failed miserably. If he, in fact, came for the purpose of saving every single person in the world, you cannot call his atonement efficacious. You cannot say that it accomplished what he intended to accomplish. Um, Whether you were here in our church or visiting another church, if you're visiting with us, you're part of another church, you probably heard something along the lines of, in the last few weeks, that Jesus came to save his people. And when he came to save his people, he did. He accomplished that. And nothing could thwart that. Verse 18 in John 3, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus and his disciples returned to the Judean countryside at this point, and while those under his leadership were baptizing, John the Baptist was also baptizing. And in verse 26, chapter 3, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So obviously they're expressing great concern that there's some sort of transference from allegiance to John over to Jesus. What's happening? Are we we losing our team? Are people jumping ship? Is the competition more appealing? What's happening here? And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. An allusion to the fact that the one 
uh, whose disciples were baptizing across the Jordan was in fact from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I think I shared with you when we were in this passage that I've probably quoted that passage as much as I have any, but it had all new meaning to me. Not different meaning, but deeper, richer, more powerful meaning. When we studied this text together, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's an evangelistic reality. The fact that John would lead people to Christ and that people would leave him for Christ not only gave him joy, it completed his joy. And that's the role you and I have with our children. That's the role you and I have with our disciples, that we would be so engaged in our love for and dependence upon Jesus Christ, so enthralled with him, so worshipful of him, so singing to him, so treasuring him, so blessing him, that in all of our relationships, everything catches people up in a whirlwind of our pursuit and focus upon him. And if they would have anything to do with us, they'd be led to him, and we would one day say, oh, you're following him now. Oh, my joy is complete. And that's the testimony of of John. Now, the stark reality in verse 36, you must not miss. Because John says here, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so, do something about this. Do something about the fact that you know people who claim to know Christ and they don't obey him. You'll remember from last week that I reminded you of my dear friend Tony McCracken's words, there's no such thing as Christianity without Jesus Christ. And the point of that statement is that there are those who claim to know Christ and they deliberately, willfully justify their perpetuated, unrepentant sin. Let's read it again, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God. The person who believes salvifically, we would say. The person who genuinely displays a dependent trust upon the Savior. He has eternal life. But whoever does not... He doesn't... Listen. He doesn't say whoever does not believe. What does he say? Whoever does not obey. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see Life, this is a black and white biblical reality. It's the most fundamental reality of the Bible, and yet it's the most convoluted, blurred issue in the modern church. Well, whether or not he's a Christian, that's between him and the Lord. It's not between him and the Lord. It's between you, if you're in Christ, and your church, and the Lord, and that person. This is one of the reasons we have membership that we can graciously, lovingly shepherd people through a legitimate understanding of what it means to be certain that you are a member of the body of Christ. Being a member of the body of Christ, you can confidently say, I obey the Son. He's my King. He is my Lord. I love the Son. He's my Master. He's the one that gives me the orders. Where do you get them? Oh, from his word, because they're perfect and they're not a moving target. So I do what he says. And then you have the person who says, you know, I made Jesus so my, uh, my savior, you know, back in my 20s, but that whole lordship thing, I, I don't really agree with that stuff. And that is the attitude. And John says, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. That's how you should see those who claim to know Christ but do not obey him. 
The wrath of God sits on them. So you should love them. You should love them like Jesus did. You should be willing to have relationships with people. And ask yourself, to what degree am I displaying um, my conviction, my deep belief that uh, salvation came to me like the wind? I didn't go out and get it. I didn't cause my new birth. To what degree are you displaying that in a passionate pursuit of earthly relationships that you would hope to become eternal relationships? Well, chapter 4. Jesus arrives tired and thirsty to Jacob's well and asks a Samaritan woman to give him some water. She's perplexed that he, a Jew, would even speak to a Samaritan woman, much less receive water from her dirty hands. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and the Jews' hatred was much more intense than that of the Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. After some discussion in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What's happening in her heart? We don't know entirely, but certainly she is not displaying a full understanding or even some uh, significant understanding of the fact that he's talking about Spiritual water. Give me that water. This is hard work. It's hot. i got to come during the day so as to avoid the crowd because, you know, I'm anathema because I've had five husbands and uh, nobody wants to talk to me or see me. So this is a really difficult thing. I'd rather not have to do this. If I can have whatever this living water is, then give me that. Jesus then points out that she has had five husbands and that the man she is living with is not her husband. This proves his... Omniscience. This is something he couldn't have known if he were not God. Seeing that he is a prophet, she says to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. There was a debate, and uh, really it was a severing debate. It was a, a, a deliberate, intentional point of contention between the Samaritans and the Jews. It was a prideful matter. The only place for worship is here on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, say the Jews. Samaritans, on the other hand, would say, no, 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 you got that all wrong. It's over here on this mountain, a mountain immediately next to theirs. And they would say, this is the highest mountain there is, therefore it's the place of worship. And there are some other biblical reasons or seeming scriptural reasons to which they point so as to defend that and, and Jesus says, says, You're all wrong. The day is coming where worship will take place in the heart. Again, back to Paul's words in Romans 12. It's a matter of not being conformed to the world, but be, being transformed by the renewing of the, the mind, renewing of the inner man. And that Renewal is a display of what it is to be like Christ, to want to be like him. Seeing that he's a prophet, she wants to know who's right, what's the issue here. And as Jesus points out that neither of those are correct, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I know we've been over it many times, but in the event that you missed it, I just want you to understand that to worship in spirit means to mean it. It's to worship from the heart. And to worship in truth is to worship in accord with God's word. To worship the one true God of the Bible. So really what worshiping in spirit and truth means is that you would mean it when you worship 
the one true God. Jesus then explains to her that he is the Messiah for which all of Israel has been waiting. The disciples show up and are stunned that he's even talking to her, but none of them have the courage to rebuke him or her. The woman leaves. Jesus then explains to his disciples that in his hunger, um, he has food that they don't know about. He says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, calling them to a life of evangelism. I I suppose there might not be any issue in America that might more easily draw more people into a greater propensity for being annoyed and maybe even angry, and that's messing with their food. It's lunchtime. Why are we still here? i got to go eat dinner. You know, and, and nothing wrong with wanting to eat. That's a natural reality. But the testimony of our Savior is that I have food that you don't know about. What's his point? His point is that they have not yet matured to be able to know that what really ought to drive them is a hunger for doing the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? It's what those nine families who you see posted on our missions while out here are doing overseas. It is to make disciples of all nations. It's what you are doing because you've partnered with those families and with those seminaries. When you remember Jesus' command upon your life to store up your treasure in heaven and not on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves come in and steal, this passage ought to come to mind. It ought to strengthen you. It ought to produce encouragement in you. It really ought to produce joy in you for the fact that the Lord has and continues to use you truly in a model-type way, that you as a young church, a six-year-old church, are already deeply involved in three countries and about to be involved in a fourth, rather significantly making a mark. See, that's what, that's what you ought to think about when you wake up in the morning. You know, that's what ought to drive you, that your food is not what's on the breakfast table nearly so much as that which is in your Bible that God has given you as your Father to give you the marching orders, that you would know how you would please Him, that you know how you would honor Him. This is why Jesus came. This is why God took on flesh. This is why the incarnation happened. Jesus says, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And and this happens generation after generation after generation. You know, you and I really ought not to take a whole lot of credit for what the Lord's doing in in our church because we sit on the shoulders of the Reformers and the Puritans and folks in Sun Valley and uh, folks across the world who've had influence on you. you. You know, we do what we do because we see it in Scripture. But in many cases, the conduit is some earthly work that God decreed in heaven that you don't see recorded in Scripture, but he uses in the here and now, enabling you and me to take the gospel to the lost. It's your workplace. It's your home. It's your neighborhood. It's those relatives that you only talk to once a year at most that would see in your Christmas newsletter that you love Christ. Those things mean something. When you make those efforts, small as they may seem, when you spend time thinking about them, when you uh, calculate how it might come across, how they will hear it, how you might deliver truth in a way that exemplifies a dependence upon Christ, but a love for them, that means something. One sows and another reaps. We've got much for which to be thankful with regard to the work of many Christians in our past, our spiritual ancestors. This woman shows an amazing work of the Lord in her life and in others. 
She goes into Sychar in Samaria and proclaims such a profound testimony of Jesus' ministry to her that many Samaritans believed in him and were saved. They came to him after listening to him, and after listening to his word, they confirmed her testimony by saying, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Some might see that as some sort of uh, correction to her, but not at all. It was confirmation. The text tells us that they heard from her and they believed. But what she wanted to take place, what needed to take place, was that their allegiance be transferred from her to him. It did, and they were able to give testimony to the fact that what you told us while it was true is not what we lean on. We lean on what he has said. See, that happens when a person that you shared the gospel with becomes a Bible reader. It really begins to love and grow in the Scripture, even as... uh, these folks did from Samaria. Jesus returns to Cana, where he had performed his first miracle and healed a government official's son without even going to where the boy was in Capernaum. In verse 50, go, your son will live, Jesus says. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And so there was a determined dependence in this man's heart. He believed, wanted to believe, had some sort of belief, went on his way. Verse 51 says, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household So Jesus not only saved the boy's life physically, he saved the entire family eternally. So today, chapter 5. A little bit of intro. (laughs) I heard that. Chapters 5 through 7, there's a gradual but eventually drastic change in attitude in the hearts of the multitudes toward Jesus. But in chapter 5 in particular, Jesus begins to experience a great deal of hostility. The response of the masses that would have crippled and even terminated the will of most men, but Jesus was undeterred. He was on a mission, and that mission was to reach the cross. He came to die. The issue that initiates this opposition from the multitudes is the Sabbath. And thus the title of today's message, Jesus Heals a Man on the Sabbath. Now a couple of textual issues, and we'll deal more with these later, but just briefly. Some liberal scholars want to say that chapters 5 and 6 are out of order. Suffice it to say that there is simply no manuscript evidence for this suggestion. And then you might ask, where in the world is verse 4 in my ESV or my NAS? What happened? We'll talk more about that in a bit. There's a good reason for it to be left out. But point number one in an effort this morning to see that Jesus heals a man despite his misguided belief so that our expectations of Jesus' power will not be limited by our experience. Point number one, I want you to see the mercy of Jesus. Our text tells us after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this or after these things, if you have the NAS... This is a phrase that John is fond of. He uses it from time to time. It's a simple indication that some time has passed. Now, of the six times John refers to a feast of the Jews in the Gospel of John, this is the only instance where he does not identify exactly what that feast is. In chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 6, verse 4, and chapter 11, verse 55, John uses this term and specifically calls it the Passover. In chapter 7, verse 2, same term, Feast of the Jews, he clarifies that he's speaking of the Feast of Booths. And in chapter 10, verse 22, where he uses the term a Feast of the Jews, he specifies that it is the Feast of Dedication. Not here. It's just a Feast of the Jews. He doesn't qualify it at all. And So why? Well, clearly it's not important to know what particular feast it is. What is important is to know why Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was for a feast of the Jews, but even that was not the greater purpose he went 
uh, actually for a different reason, but it was for the public element, the public display, so to speak, where there would be a large crowd gathered during a feast of the Jews. Certainly any feast of the Jews would have drawn uh, massive, massive numbers of Jews. And so the purpose for which he was going would be to heal a man in that public setting so as to have a greater and wider audience who would observe the miracle. Now in the past he had said, don't tell anybody. Uh, but here he wants it to be on display. You'll see why momentarily. So John's phrase, the Jews, occurs around 70 times in his gospel. The synoptic gospels only use it occasionally, and it's usually in the phrase, the king of the Jews. The term, the Jews, is not always negative, though, in John's gospel. Sometimes it's used positively, as in salvation is from the Jews. That's positive. But John usually uses it to refer to the corrupt leaders of Israel who opposed Christ and eventually killed him. He refers to the ethnic Jews in Galilee as the Galileans. He does not call them Jews. He distinguishes between the corrupt leaders as the Jews and the other Jews that dwell in a particular place. So here, the idea of the Jews is that he's going to a place where the faulty, really pharisaical Jewish leaders are in abundance. Verse 2 then says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The sheep gate here, we don't have a whole lot of history on this, but back in Nehemiah chapter 3, a couple of times, there's a reference to the sheep gate, and this is likely the gate into which sheep were brought for the slaughter. So there could be some symbolic significance that Jesus is coming into, or at least nearby, the sheep gate, as the one that John has just said is the Lamb of God, the sheep coming to be slaughtered. In Bethesda, there is uh, the tradition that this term means house of outpourings, probably better translated as house of twin outpourings. We'll talk about that in a moment, why that's significant. Uh, but where, where is the end of verse 3? And verse 4, where is that verse? Waiting for the moving of the water. Remember reading this as a kid. Don't you, I mean, this is one of the verses we remember, right? Because it's so cool. These angels come down and they stir the waters and people walk when they couldn't walk. Uh, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. This is not included in the more reliable manuscripts and was likely added due to the common belief that the water had healing power in it. And that may have been somewhat true. In this short phrase, though, are 12 words that John never uses anywhere else. That's quite precarious. Also, um, this phrase uh, related to the angels, um, it's it's has nothing to do with this text. There's no place else in this text where he says anything about angels. Why in the world would he just kind of toss this in all of a sudden? But multiple secular records indicate that the water had a, a reddish tint to it, meaning that it could have been a calibiot base, which was iron, which could have had a bit of healing effect on those who got in it. Uh, years ago when I was in Croatia, I was having chicken fights. I had this 14-year-old kid on my neck, and we were chicken fighting a couple of grown men, and I was not going to lose. And so I pressed and pressed and pressed, you know, hoping he wouldn't get drowned, and I'd get drowned with him, and uh, something snapped in my neck. And these were the, if you've been there, these were the hot springs there in Krapina, Croatia, and I sat under one of those water inlets coming in that hot, mineral-saturated water, and for all I know, my neck would have been a lot worse off because it felt so good sitting under that. I remember as a kid reading a, a book about President Roosevelt when uh, he had developed polio, and uh, supposedly he had found some relief in some warm springs. And so I, I looked this up, and the National Park Service wrote an article uh, wherein it stated the following, George Foster Peabody, a prominent businessman and philanthropist in New York, purchased some property in 1923. Peabody shared the story of a young polio victim's recovery after bathing in the swimming pools at Warm Springs with his friend Franklin D. Roosevelt. The young politician paralyzed from the waist down in 1921 from polio. 
Roosevelt arrived at the result in October 3rd, 1924, hoping to find a cure. The next day, he began swimming and immediately felt an improvement. For the first time in three years, he was able to move his right leg. Because Roosevelt was nationally prominent, his visit assured publicity for Warm Springs. A syndicated Sunday newspaper supplement featured his experience. By his return in 1925, other patients were coming in the hope of a cure. In 1926, he bought the resort property in 1,200 acres from George Peabody for some $200,000. Seeking medical advice and contributions from his friends, he organized the nonprofit Warm Springs Foundation in 1927, turning the property over to the foundation. Although he never again was able to use his legs fully, by 1928, Roosevelt regained enough physical and emotional strength to return to his great passion, politics. And you know much of the rest of the story. He became president later. Interestingly, he died at Warm Springs of a brain bleed, a brain aneurysm. That's a little eerie for me. But uh, we um, can attest to the fact, not only from this story, but many others, that there can be some measure of healing power. I remember when I first got to college, I had a friend tell me that... Um, He'd had vision problems most of his life, and all of a sudden he was seeing better, but it wasn't quite right. And, and I don't want to put a whole lot of stock in this, but he had done some things that kind of helped his vision, but it still wasn't quite right, and he just remembered that when God does something, he does it with perfection. And so whatever healing that took place in the legs and the body of a young uh, would-be president, President Roosevelt, it wasn't what the Lord accomplished in this man in our text this morning. You see the mercy of Jesus Christ further as we look in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? That's an expression of mercy. You say, well, how do I display that mercy? Well, you can't heal people but you can have the heart attitude. We see in this text the mercy of Jesus, the one who is the sovereign God, the one who can heal, the one who did heal. Uh, most historians would say that nearly all infirmity was eradicated from Israel while Jesus walked the earth. Few people experienced long-lasting ailments. Why? Because Jesus was healing in a miraculous and voluminous way such that the attention was drawn to him and his sovereign ability. Do you want to be healed? He shows his mercy. Number two, point number two, the mistrust of a sinner. The mistrust of a sinner. The sick man answered him, Sir, now this would have some expression of what a lot of mythical traditions would tell us, and that is that maybe um, it was only the first person who got into the water who would be healed. The angels came down and stirred the water. When I said earlier that the term Bethesda, meaning two outpourings, had significance, what I mean by that is that there are two pools there that feed that area. Two pools coming into one central place together, you know what that does. It creates, they don't come in at the same speed, so it creates somewhat of a whirlpool, and so the waters are naturally stirred. And so if the waters were naturally stirred, that would likely have stirred up the minerals. It could have had some impact. And so the man is leaning on that. He's trusting in that. He's trusting that, gosh, if only, if only I could get myself into that water in the right timing. But he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. That's where his hope was, not just in the water, but it was in the stirring of the water. And while I am going, another steps down before me. I've got no hope. And you can imagine that this dear man who had for 38 years been unable to do much, if anything, and sat there and waited. Who knows if he was there every day or nearly every day, but he would likely have been discouraged. I mean, how long does it take you and me to get to the place where we say, how long is this going to take? 38 years or a day in some cases, sometimes when you're waiting on the microwave, 30 seconds? This poor man had waited 38 years, and then a gentle soul comes to him and says, would you like to be healed? And so he must be thinking, how are you going to get me into that water? Because that's my only hope. This is misplaced trust. It's trust in, in the wrong object. Now, later in our text that we'll look at next week, we see that he declares he doesn't know Jesus. 
Kind of hard to imagine, but it could be true. It could be true that because he's stuck there at the porticos, at these porches, waiting, that he's not out and about and hearing about this person of Jesus, the miracle worker. Beginning in verse 8. The miracle of Jesus. Jesus said to him, get up. Gives him three commands. Get up. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can only imagine that the man might not have heard anything else after that. Are you serious? Are you trying to be funny? Get up. Take your bed. And walk. The willingness, now think of it, of the well-known pretend evangelist to make money hand over fist from people like this by telling them, get up and walk. But if they don't, they get set aside to a place next to the stage where the cameras can't see them. That's the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata and Justin Peters, both of whom from a very young age were disabled in wheelchairs, but told by these supposed miracle-working evangelists, you can be healed. And someone brought them to a crusade. Someone brought them to a football stadium or some place that could hold thousands of people. And when it was obvious that they had real infirmities, they were set aside. You stay over here. We'll talk to you later. When Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? He asked it because he could actually do it. Now, am I saying... God doesn't do healing works today. Yeah, God heals people today for sure. He doesn't restore limbs. He doesn't resurrect people from the dead. He doesn't part seas. Don't look for those kinds of miracles. But he does do great works. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus performing a work that for 38 years could not physically, medicinally be done. He does that which only he can do, which draws attention to his unique, exclusive, sovereign ability as the God-man. Jesus said, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And this is no less significant, nor is it any more significant than the words Jesus spoke when he said, let there be light. Created the world. And this is the Jesus that inhabits our hearts in a different economy. This is one thing that makes us dispensationalists. God dispenses truth in different ways, in different eras. His word is the exclusive expression of that but we believe that God performs differently throughout different eras because his exclusive expression of truth shows that he does. If you were to look for the miracles in the Bible, you wouldn't find really all that many, and you'd find them in three eras throughout history. We don't live in one of those ages, but we do live in an age where God's work is equally powerful and think of it, what greater miracle is there than the salvation of a lost soul who has no ability to pursue him? In the previous miracle that we saw, we saw that Jesus not only healed a sick little boy, but we saw that he saved eternally his entire family. I won't read the whole thing, but in John 9, you see a real contrast to this distrusting man's position here in John 5. Just a little bit of this text from John 9, the miracle of this blind man receiving sight. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And I, and I love this. Verse 30, I love this. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. That's a little bit of sarcasm, friends. 
I mean, he's getting a little tired of being pummeled by these religious Pharisees who don't know their thumb from their index finger. And as they give him so much trouble, his response is, okay, now I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting the fact that you don't get it because you don't want to get it. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. God listens to him. Listen, don't be discouraged that God's not performing miracles today. Be encouraged that the same God with the same power performs equally powerful works, and he listens to those who come to him with a humble and repentant spirit. You've seen the mercy of Jesus Christ. You've seen the misplaced trust of a sinner, and you have seen the miracle of Jesus. Don't be the one whose trust is misplaced in food or in your job or a place to live, or your car, or your friends, whatever it may be, may it be that you would find yourself most satisfied in glorifying Jesus Christ where you are, that he might use you as you trust him, and that others might trust him as a result. Father, we rejoice in this great and amazing expression of Jesus' work in a man's life who didn't even trust him as we consider the immense mercy and kindness that Jesus would change a man's life even while that man distrusted him, that he would show his kindness, that he would pour out his blessings, that he would provide for him the ability to walk, and that it would be obvious that he spoke that into reality. Lord, may we never be so hard-hearted May we never reject the clear and obvious blessings you've showered us with. May we never ask for more. May we never ask for it to be replaced with something better. But Father, may we rest and enjoy what you've given to us that we might be used for your glory like the man in John 9 who not only showed that it was not sin that led to his illness but was willing with the strength of Christ to rebuke those who were resting in a false gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.